In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak your word, to preach it, to proclaim it, to explain it. Lord, I am in need of you every time I do this, but I am especially in need of you this morning because of the difficulty of this passage. So Lord, would you give me a special empowering of your Holy Spirit, a clarity of mind and speech, a conviction of soul, and Lord, a compassion deep in my heart to communicate this truth to your people. I pray, dear God, that they would be attentive, leaning forward, eager to listen, eager to learn. Lord, I pray for the person right now who has no interest whatsoever in knowing you or following you. I pray, Lord, that in the next hour, something will change. And Lord, if that will happen, you must be the one to do it. So I ask you, please, Lord, to give them the will to call out to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This anticipates a monarch who will rule with objective standards, and that king is Jesus. Now we are currently studying the Old Testament book of Judges. The book of Judges is rough. Uh, the stories are for mature audiences, and today is no exception. Chapters 4 and 5, we've got a rough story here. It is repetitive. There is an ongoing cycle. And I wonder, as I use that phrase, ongoing cycle, am I being redundant? Is a cycle not by definition ongoing? There's an ongoing cycle of sin and suffering and supplication and salvation and solace over and over again. The book of Judges is rhetorical. It is a book that is put together with clever assortments of chiasms and word plays and ironies. The smart guys point out countless Hebrew words which add layers to the surface meaning of it. It is a masterful work of literature. And most importantly, the book of Judges is redemptive. And that is that week after week, we see undeserving peoples shown grace upon grace. All of it points to the king of grace, Jesus Christ. See, the point of the Bible is Jesus and the point of the book of Judges is that Jesus is better than self-styled anarchistic Judaism. Well, today we're going to be looking at two full chapters. Chapter 4 is the story in narrative form of how Israel defeated the Canaanites from a human perspective through the leadership of Deborah and Barak. We're going to move on to chapter 5, and guess what? It's the same exact story. But this time, it is, an ex it is an explanation of the same victory in the form of a song from a divine perspective. So chapter 4, it's the story, narrative form, human perspective. Chapter 5, same story in the form of a song from a divine perspective. Let's talk about singing for just a moment. It's interesting how the human mind with ease can remember lyrics to songs. In the middle of your Bible, you have a songbook which has 150 songs. It is the book of Psalms. 
Now, Israel would use songs in their worship, and Judges chapter 5 is part of their worship. It would help them to remember, and it would help them to rejoice. Well, today, here's how I'm going to approach these two chapters. I'm going to tell, for the most part, the story from chapter 4 with limited readings, and then when I get to chapter 5, I'm going to read it with limited commentary. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a mashup of the two accounts and uh, extract seven spiritual observations and or practical applications. So Judges chapter 4, let's make our way through the story. Follow along in your Bible. Make sure that I'm telling you the truth. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Again, they did it. Again, they go into idolatry. And so what God does as a result of this, he empowers a Canaanite king by the name of Jabin to discipline his children. Now, there's going to be a lot of characters. There's going to be a lot of places, a lot of events going to have to pay attention in order to follow the storyline. But you have this man, Jabin, he's a Canaanite king, and he's going to be used of God to discipline the Jewish people. And Jabin employs a general by the name of Sisera. And Sisera has the latest warfare technology available, and he has it in mass. And it comes in the form of 900 iron chariots. And so for 20 years, he has his way with Israel. Look in verses 4 and 5. Now, Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Deborah, what does that word mean? Literally, it is interpreted honeybee. Um, it, if you want the exact Hebrew rendering, I think it means sugar pie honey bunch. And I think her husband, when asked why he married her, said, I can't help myself. I think that, that's a, it's a marginal note, but that's what we have there. And notice that she is stationary. She is not traveling as a prophetess. She is sitting under her palm tree between the two, uh, two cities there. Um, notice from last week that she was a judge. Remember what a judge does. A judge does not settle disputes between Israelite people, but a judge acted as an agent to bring judgment upon God's enemies. And in this particular case, Jabin is the enemy of God and his and his general Sisera. Now, how she did it, I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, but for right now, I just want to say something about the place of women in ministry, the place of women in ministry. Um, I want to give you the definitions of a couple of big words, uh, complementarianism and... Uh, and egalitarianism. And if one of our members could please give us some assistance, that would help right now. Thank you. Um, what is an egalitarian position? Well, an egalitarian position is one that says that men and women are the same and that they have the same function. A complementarian position says that men and women 
are the same and of equal value before God, but that they have different functions, that they have different functions. Well, we here at North Shore Baptist Church hold to a complementarian position. Now, let me say something about women in ministry in the Bible. First of all, there were several prophetesses in the Bible. Uh, First of all, there is Miriam, who is the sister of Moses. And there is this lady, Huldah, who is a prophetess, who in 2 Kings was useful in the reforms of Josiah. Uh, There was Isaiah's wife, who named their son Meher Shalal Hashbaz. She was a prophetess. You move to the New Testament, you see Anna, who was a prophetess, who saw the baby Jesus. And then you had this man, Philip, who had four unmarried daughters. And in Acts 21, all four of them were prophetesses. There were prophetesses who prophesied negatively or who were opposed to God. For example, there's this obscure character in Nehemiah chapter 6, Noadiah the prophetess who opposed Nehemiah. And then in Revelation chapter 2, you see in Thyatira, there was a prophetess named Jezebel. Uh, And uh, remember in the book of Joel, several times he's going to tell us that that. In the final days, that is the day of Pentecost, uh, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And it's clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 through 32, uh, that women would be prophesying. And so you need to ask the question, why is it then that there are no prophetesses at North Shore Baptist Church? Well, the answer is the same reason why there are no men prophets at North Shore Baptist Church, because the gift of prophecy has ceased. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, as for prophecies, they will pass away, and I believe that they have. So what does this then have to do with women teaching or preaching or being elders or having authority over men in the local church? Well, the clear instruction for that is given in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Listen to this. This is the instruction for the church today. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What's the rationale for this? Verse 13. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, Eve, was deceived and became a transgressor. So as you look at this woman, Deborah, you can't make the argument that we should have women pastors today because what Deborah was doing as a prophetess and a judge is not the same as teaching or having authority over man in a local church. Likewise, in the home, we have a complementarian position saying that men and women are equal and they are equal of equal value to, to, to God. However, the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23. All of that to say, you cannot look at Deborah and say, that's a reason why we should have women pastors. We should not have women pastors, for to do so is to go against the word of God. But now back to the story. How in the world does Deborah serve to help the people of God? Well, look what it says in verses 6 and 7 of Judges chapter 4. And then we're going to do some map work, 6 and 7. She, speaking of Deborah, sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, 
and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I, speaking of God, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. We have a lot of characters. We have a lot of places. I don't even know if you're following the story. Here's one thing I would like to do in order to help you follow the story. Let me show you a map of where all of this is happening. Right here between Bethel and Ramah, that is where the palm of Deborah was. It is in the region here of Ephraim. She's sitting there. She's judging Israel. She hears of the oppression that is going on. The people come to her. They cry out for help. And so what she does is she summons a military man from way up north in Kadesh Naphtali. His name is Barak. Barak comes down. She says to Barak, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to battle against Jabin and against Sisera. And this guy, Barak, says, I will go, but I will only go if you go with me. And Deborah says, I will go with you, but if I go with you, please know that there will be no glory for you, but the victory is going to come at the hands of a woman. Spoiler alert, if you're reading it right now, you would think that that woman would be Deborah. It's not going to be Deborah, it's going to be someone else. So they leave and they travel up north. Now, here's what's happening up here. The place where they are going to set up for battle is Mount Tabor. The reason that that's interesting is it is the worst possible location that you could go to from a military standpoint in order to set up for battle. It is like an upside-down bowl. And so if Sisera, the general of Jabin, hears that the army of Israel is gathered at Mount Tabor, he is going to lick his chops and he's going to want to get there for target practice It's going to be an easy victory with him and his 900 iron chariots. Where is he? Well, he is from this place over here called Herosheth. And he is a little bit north of the, and to the, um, and to the west of the Kishon River. This is the place, Kadesh in the south, where Barak is supposed to gather his troops and then march them over to Mount Tabor. We will come back to this in just a moment, but I wanted to just sort of put it into perspective for you. Deborah tells Barak, you get 10,000 soldiers together, and remember that 10,000 number doesn't really mean 10,000, it's the, it's the Hebrew equivalent of a kajillion, just get a kajillion soldiers together on Mount Tabor, go there, and that's where the fight is going to take place. But please know that you yourself, even though there will be a victory, you are not going to get the victory, but it's going to come to a woman. So the two of them travel up north. He musters his 10,000 men from Zebulon and Naphtali and the northern tribes, and that is where the battle is going to take place. Now you insert verse 11, and it's one of those verses which does not appear to fit into the story at all. It's a head-scratcher, like where in the world does this come from and why is it even in the Bible? Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in a long word beginning with the word Z, which is near Kadesh. 
Who are the Kenites? Moses commits a crime. He flees. He finds a wife. Her family are the Kenites. Moses goes back to Egypt. He leads the children of Israel out into the wilderness. And while he's there, his father-in-law, his in-laws, the Kenites, they come and they join up with him. They have some good conversation. His father-in-law helps him. Moses says, why don't you go with me? His father-in-law says, I'm not going to go with you. But some of them, some of the Kenites decide to go with the children of Israel. And they go with them to the point where they are incorporated into and adopted by the tribe of Judah. And they go into the land of promise, and they settle in the land of promise, and they are in Judah. But they are Kenites, not Jews. They're incorporated into Jewish life. And there's this one renegade Kenite who says, I'm tired of living in the south. I want to move up north. Let me see the map for just a moment. And he decides to move into this long word that starts with a Z, It, as you will notice, is very close to Sisera's hometown, Harosheth. So when the battle is over, those two places are going to play into the aftermath. That's who the Kenites are. Let's just wait and see what happens with this Kenite man, Heber. In verses 12 through 15 of chapter 4, the battle happens, and we have an account of the battle. And Israel wins. He, Sisera hears that Israel is at Mount Tabor. He takes his entire army along with the 900 chariots in that direction. When he starts to do that, Deborah says, let's go. And Barak and his army go on the offense. Israel wins. How do they win? If you read Judges chapter 4, you are not told how they win the battle. You have to wait till Judges chapter 5 for the details. But for now, the Canaanite army heads northwest, and Barak and, and, and the children of Israel chase them. They catch them, and they subdue them. Sisera, their fearless leader, jumps out of his chariot, and he crosses the Kishon River on foot, and he seeks aid from his Kenite friends in the region with the name, with the, with the, the big word that starts with the letter Z. So again, let me point it out on the map. I know I'm being redundant, but I want you to see it. The battle is going to take place right here. When the Canaanites realize that they are going to lose, they get out of there and they start heading north up toward Hazor. The Jews chase them, they overcome them, and they defeat Jabin up there. Their general, their fearless leader, crosses over the river in an attempt to go home. And on his way home, he goes to, I'm going to attempt it, Zananim. Zananim. That's right. I could have been saying it all along. He goes to Zananim, where Heber has set up his tent. And here's what happens when he heads in that direction. Verses 17 through 22. And I tell you every week that Judges is a rough book. It's pretty rough right here. Put your seatbelts on. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, 
do not be afraid. So she's saying, hey, come into my tent. Now, I'm going to read it as it appears in English. I'm going to leave it as it appears in English. But just let me say this. There's more than a little bit of um, evidence here from the Hebrew language that what happens in this tent is not just him taking a nap. There seems to be some salacious activity that happens in this tent. We can leave that. It's, it's speculative. We'll just go with the plain English rendering here. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Um, What's happening here is he's thirsty, he wants some water, And she says, "Ah, I'm not going to give you water. I'm going to give you milk, which is the ancient Near East equivalent to melatonin or NyQuil or whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to knock you out. And so, so, so she does. Um, verse 20. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man, that's important, man comes to ask you, is anyone, the anyone there is an unfortunate translation. It should say, any man in here, you say, no. Why is this happening? Well, remember the whole thing that Deborah spoke to Barak about, that, that, that the enemy is going to be delivered into the hands of a woman. What is at play here, and this is a rhetorical aspect of the word of Hebrews, is, is there a man in here? And the answer is, no, there's not a real man in here. That's what the author is trying to convey here. Here's what Jael does, verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, and so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So we went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. She didn't even pull it out. She didn't even roll him over. There he is, quite literally nailed to the floor. And at that moment, Barak sees that the victory has been given into the hand of a woman. What follows is that the army pursues the Canaanites up north, and they eventually destroy Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. That is the narrative version. That is from a human perspective. Now we're going to do the same story all over again, but this time we're going to do it in song form. We're going to do it in chapter 5, or it's a a poem, if you will. And uh, this is from God's perspective, and we learn a little bit more about how Israel won the fight. The Hebrew poetry guys tell us that this song has five stanzas. I'm not going to break it down that way. I'm just going to read through it and sprinkle in commentary as we go. Here we go. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord, Yahweh, I will sing. 
I will make melody. This is a song that is to be sung to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, how did he do it? Verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Please understand what's happening here. God is said to be the one that is going, but he himself in his person is not going, nor is he even sending an army to be going, but what is he doing? He starts a weather front all the way over in Edom, in Mount Seir, in that mountain range, which is a long way away, and he moves the weather front to the battle place, and when the battle begins, he drops all kinds of precipitation on the ground to the point where the river floods and the chariots get stuck in the mud. Probably included in this is also lightning bolts. And in the next verse, we see that what God employed in order to stop the Canaanites was earthquakes. Uh, verse 5, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember how it used to quake at Mount Sinai when God was giving the law? Well, once again, as the battle begins, God begins to rumble the ground and the Canaanites cannot move. They're stuck in the mud. They're getting pelted with rain. The floods are coming and lightning bolts are hitting them and the ground is quaking. Basically, nature was God's bow and arrow. God uses the weather to accomplish his purposes. In June of 1941, Adolf Hitler wanted to make a push to overtake Moscow. If the Nazis had taken Moscow, we all might be speaking German right now. His plan was working brilliantly until October when it started to rain. And when it started to rain, the Nazi tanks could not progress. They were stuck in the mud. But then things got good for the Nazis in November when the ground froze and the Germans were able to advance. And did you know that they got within 12 miles of Moscow? That's how close they were. They take Moscow. It is a different world we're living in today. But here's what happened on December 5th of 1941. The recorded temperature on that battlefield was 45 degrees below zero. The Germans could not fire their weapons. It was too cold. They could not move. They did not have supplies. They could not get supplies. They were stopped right there by God. I was in the Great Patriotic War Museum in Minsk in Belarus, and they were talking about the resolve of the Soviet people and how they held off the Germans. And I raised my hand and I said to the person that worked there, what about the weather? And the woman said, the weather had nothing to do with it. It was just the resolve of the Soviet people. Friends, I'm telling you, if God had not dropped that temperature to 45 below, the Nazis would have been in Moscow and the world would be very different today. There's a man by the name of Michael Peck who wrote an article called How the Russian Winter Froze Hitler's Nazi Empire in Its Tracks, and he writes, 
German weapons were frozen. German soldiers were sometimes frozen to their weapons. The survivors could only watch helplessly as the attackers, that is the Soviets, warmly clad in fur-lined jackets and boots and camouflaged in white suits emerged like ghosts through the snow. The, 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 the Soviets are wearing these white suits to camouflage themselves. The Germans can't move, and like ghosts, they come out and they defeat the Nazi army right there. God used the weather to defeat Sisera. God used the weather to defeat the Nazis. God is in control. You see, Sisera, he was far superior to Barak and Deborah, but God is far superior to Sisera. Verses 6 through 8 Deborah laments how bad things were in Israel before this battle. And she sings, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. Uh, They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? The answer is no. In other words, what she's saying is, before this battle, things were really bad. Days of Shamgar, it was really bad. The days of Jael, maybe the reason why she wanted to put the tent peg through this guy's head is because things were so bad for her and her family. With Sisera up there, not really sure. The people of Israel were in idolatry, and when the idolatry came, well, that is the reason why the oppression came. And when the oppression came, you couldn't even find a shield or a, or a spear in Israel. Verse number nine, Deborah sings, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys. That's the rich. You who sit on rich carpets, that's the rich. And you who walk by the way, that's the poor, rich and poor alike. How is it to be done? Just in a narrative form? No, you are to put this to a melody and you are to hire a band and the band is to sing this. To the sound of musicians, verse 11, at the watering places. In church? Well, yes, in church, but also out in community, out in society, everywhere you go, at the watering places. There they will repeat. You don't just sing it once, but you keep singing of the greatness of God. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Not the soldiers, but these villagers who didn't have weapons, who were victorious in battle. Sing it, rich and poor. Sing it everywhere. Sing it with instruments. Sing it over and over again. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. That is part of the lyrics that they are to be singing. Verse 12 is a really interesting little musical interlude here. It says, awake, Awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Here's what's happening here. Picture Elvis Presley out front in his white jumpsuit. He is singing, but he needs backup singers. And so off to the side back here, you have his backup singers who were known as the 
sweet inspirations. I'm disappointed that you don't know that. And they would stand back here and he would be up front. He would be singing, but they were doing, you know, their little thing in the back. Well, what you have is Deborah is up here and she is singing, but there are some background singers and they are back here singing. Awake, oh Deborah, awake, awake, keep singing. She's urging Deborah to continue to sing and telling Barak, look, get after those people and take the plunder from them. Verse 13 through verse 18, you're going to see how the people of God served. Some of the tribes served well, and some of the tribes did not serve at all, and they are all noted here. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, that's one of the tribes where Deborah was, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, that's another one of the tribes, with your kinsmen, from Machir, and that is in, uh, Machir is in Manasseh, marched down the commanders, from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar, that is another of the tribes, came with Deborah and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. These are the clans. These are the tribes that participated and helped to win the victory. But there were some tribes that did not participate. Among the clans of Reuben were great searching, searchings of heart. In other words, Reuben, is your conscience bothering you right now? because you did not participate in this battle. Reuben is asked in verse 16, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. You were wrestling within your heart. How do you feel? Do do, do you feel like you really did your part? As As you have a conversation with yourself, you know you didn't do your part. Gilead, Gilead is in Manasseh. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying with his landings. These are the tribes that did not participate, but now he ends with tribes that did participate. And we see a beautiful picture of the gospel in verse 18. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. We will come back to that in just a moment. Verse 19, the kings, that is the kings who were helping Sisera and Jabin, the kings, the local kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. You know why they got no spoils of silver? They got no spoils of silver because they didn't win the battle. Here's a beautiful picture in 20, 21, and 22, how God used the weather to defeat the Canaanites. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. One commentator, and he even has the date, and I don't know that he's right, but it's interesting. He talks about an eclipse that could have happened on that day where it would have gone completely dark in the middle of the day and it would have given Israel 
an opportunity to sneak up upon the Canaanites. I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure what it means when the stars are said to have fought. It has something to do with the weather. And certainly verse 21 has something to do with the weather. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, that's the river, march on my soul with might. The river flooded so badly that they couldn't even move. They were stuck in the mud. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Now verse 23 is a really interesting verse. Nobody knows where Meroz is. You read it, they speculate, they, 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 nobody really knows. It has to be something associated with Israel, but nobody knows where it is. It is an obscure place or an obscure people. And here's what it says, really interesting, and, and with a lot of gravity. Curse Moroz, says the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. So Jesus says to this obscure place, I curse you. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. Why? Because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. They chose not to go to battle, and so Jesus says, Cursed are you. You move into verses 24 through 27, and you have a retelling of the jail account of how she puts the tent peg in Sisera's head. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling woman, most blessed. She's not even like a permanent resident. She's like a nomad. She's living in a tent, but she is most blessed of women. Why? Well, he asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She broke out the good china and said, Here, my Lord, is your beverage. Not going to be water, milk for you. Go to sleep, my dear, go to sleep. 26, she sent her hand to the tent peg. Don't you love the, the literature here? Hey, Go get the tent peg. <laughs> Notice what happens with the right hand. And her right hand to the workman's mallet. Got the peg, now I need the mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. That's it. Boom. I mean, imagine you're in this heavy REM. You've just enjoyed a milk. And there you are. You have a blanket on top of you. The coast is clear. You're exhausted. You've been running from your enemy. You have found a friend. She has been nice to you. I would argue in more ways than one. And you are sound asleep and all of a sudden, that tent peg goes through your head, and you are nailed to the floor of that tent. Dead. Dead. What we have in verse 28 is just brilliant literature. It's an imaginary conversation that's happening with the mother of Sisera and her princesses. And basically what she's saying is, my boy ought to be home by now. Where is he? Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera. 
wailed through the lattice. She's beginning to cry. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? He ought to be home by now. And she gets solace from within herself and from her princesses. Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself and says, oh, here's an explanation. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A woman or two for every man? I mean, boys will be boys. And after all, this was a big victory, and there's lots of Israelite women out there. And so each of the guys, it's Surf City, two girls for every guy. And so they're out there partying it up. And besides, there's a lot of plunder, and they need to carry that back, and it's going to take some time. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoiled of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Oh, yes, I understand why my baby is not home yet. He'll be home shortly. He'll be home shortly. Mama, he ain't coming home. He's, he's dead. Like he's, he is literally nailed to the floor. Verse 31, the song ends. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but... Your friends be like the sun as she rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. From these two chapters, I want to make seven observations. And they're all brought to you by the letter S. The story of Deborah and Barak can sharpen our understanding of the doctrine of sin. Sin is stupidity. And and and. And it is so amazing how the word again appears in Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When did they start to do evil? It was after Ehud died. What does this say? Well, it says something about the leadership of Ehud, that it was excellent, that he was able to restrain the people, but it also says something about the wickedness of the people, that when that leadership was removed, when that restraint wasn't there, the people went back to the natural ways of their heart, which was to the ways of sin. You see, if you're only doing good when someone is watching you, you're not really doing good. Who you are is who you are when you are alone before God. It's why we worry about college students when they leave. What are they really like? They no longer have the restraint of their parents and their church. They're off on their own. What are they going to be like? The pastor who married Anna and I, his name was Larry Draper, and he had a heavy foot. He was a fast driver. He tells the story once of how he passed a state trooper. As he was passing the state trooper, he started to slow down. The trooper followed him for a long distance, a long distance, finally pulled him over, walked up to the car and said, sir, you do very well when someone's watching you. That's the way Israel was. But Israel sinned against the Lord when Ehud died. Sin has never made anyone happy. It is bad for you, but yet we go back to it again and again. Second observation is that the story of Deborah and Barak can sharpen your understanding of supplication, and supplication is just a fancy way of saying humble prayer. It says in chapter 4, verse 3, that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Let me make this very simple. Maybe the only reason why you needed to come to church today is to be told 
that the Lord can help you and that if you will cry out to him, he will help you. And you say, I don't deserve help. You're right, you don't deserve help and neither do I and neither did Israel. But help is not based upon our goodness, but help is based upon the mercy of God. God is merciful and gracious and he helps those who do not deserve it. Maybe this is the one thing that you needed to hear today and that is that God will help you if you will cry out to him. As it says in chapter four, verse three, call upon his name and he will answer you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you do not know God today, call out to him in the name of Jesus to have mercy upon you. Number three, the story of Deborah and Barak can sharpen your understanding of God's sovereignty. What God does, he does because he wants to do it and he is in total control. And this passage is dripping with God's providence and God's sovereignty. First of all, the weather. He's the one that controls it, and he used it in order to defeat the Canaanite armies. Notice also, as I was reading through it, did you note the number of times that it is actually God is the one who is said to have fight the battle? Chapter 4, verse 7, God says, I will give him into your hand. Chapter 4, verse 9, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Chapter 4, verse 14, the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Chapter 4, verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera. 4.23, God subdued Jabin, so forth and so on. Even through the next chapter, God is the one who is said to fight the battle. Yet even though God is sovereign and he's the one who wins the battle and he uses the weather to do it. He also uses human instrumentality. For example, how does Heber move from the south to the north to where he moves? And God using the sovereign hand in his doings in order to bring Deborah to prophesy. How did Deborah know that a woman was going to be the one who would get the victory? And Barak, the one who actually fought. And Jael, the one who had the courage to drive the tent peg into the man's head. Human instrumentality is used in the sovereignty of God over and over again. This entire story speaks of the sovereignty of God. And likewise, God is at work in you. Everything that happens in your life, and I mean everything, is by the design of God. For he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Number four, the story of Deborah and Barak can sharpen your understanding of singing because chapter five is a song. And in the song, there are additional singers. The rich are to sing, the poor are to sing. They are to sing all the time. It is to be a melody. It is to be done with instruments. And it is to extol the great virtues of God. Psalm 89.1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. You see, what you are doing when you are singing is you are evangelizing those that are around you. You are sending a message to future generations of the goodness and the greatness of God. You are ministering to the people of God when you sing to God in the presence of God's people. But more importantly, you are blessing God himself. Chapter 5, verse 2, bless the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 3, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. For most of you, you don't even need to hear this point because you, North Shore Baptist Church, you are great singers. But some of you do not sing as enthusiastically as you should or could. Let me say this. If he has saved you 
and he has saved you from your sin, from eternal damnation, that is deserving of a loud song. Israel defeating Sisera is deserving of a song, but your salvation is more worthy of a loud song. And so sing to the Lord. When you gather with your family for devotions, sing when you have a party, a gathering of the people of God. Sing when you are alone. Sing to the Lord. And when you come into the assembly, sing, brothers and sisters, sing, sing, sing to the Lord, for he is worthy. Our doctrine of singing should be sharpened by this text. Number five, the story of Deborah and Barak can sharpen your understanding of service. It's pretty simple to see that some tribes came to help and some did not. Those who came to help, their contribution is recorded forever. Those who did not help, their their lack of contribution is also recorded. Service to the people of God is service to God himself. I point you back to chapter 5, verse 23, this very curious and very weighty passage where Jesus Christ, the angel of God, to this obscure place that nobody knows where it is, puts a curse upon these people because they did not come and serve. The tribes who sat at at home were noted. See, your service to the people of God is important. Why? Because in Matthew 25, Jesus says, Inasmuch as you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now please understand, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from good works. But when we are saved, we are saved unto good works. And the way that we demonstrate those good works is in and through participation and service in the local church. For several months now, the elders and I have been looking for a way to implement the church covenant in a way that is meaningful, because we have this roster of members on our church, some people who attend, they attend regularly, or sometimes not even regularly, semi-regularly, but they just do no service in the church at all. The church covenant clearly says that you agreed to serve when you became a part of the church. But if you're not serving, the question is, are you really a member of the church? Well, technically, yes, in that your name is still on the roster. But in reality, are you really a member of the church? We need to start to note who is serving and who is not. And those who are not, I'm not really sure that they are members of the church. It is a really serious thing to claim to be saved and yet have no ministry of service in the local church. But the opposite is also true, and that is that those who serve in the church serve God himself. We don't have time today to talk through all of the participants who helped with Vacation Bible School, but for those of you who did, you served the Lord well because you served over a 100 children every day so that those kids could hear the gospel. And I say thank you, and the Lord commends you for your service. Number six, the story of Deborah and Barak can sharpen your understanding of suffering. When I use the word suffering, it's just an S word for eternal damnation. Look again at 531. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. You take this guy Sisera. He was proud. He was arrogant. His family was anticipating his victorious return. He ain't coming home, mama. He is dead. He's nailed to the floor by a woman. But what is worse than that is the eternal conscious punishment that the enemies of God will find on the final day when Christ says to them, I never knew you. 
My friends, I want to tell you today, if you are not born again, if you are not saved, you can run, but you cannot hide. God is going to find you. He's going to catch you. And even where you are running, you are running into his trap. Amos 5.19, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. There is nowhere that you can run. There is nowhere to hide. Stop running, stop resisting, and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You will either submit to him now and be saved, or you will stand before him on the final judgment day and be damned eternally. When the tent peg goes through your head, it is too late. I have some good news for everybody here today. You have not yet gotten a tent peg through your head. You're still alive. There is still time for you to repent. Submit to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. And finally, number seven. The story of Deborah and Barak can sharpen your understanding of salvation. God saved or rescued his children. Again, I point you to chapter 5, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. That is the suffering, but now the salvation. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. That is a beautiful picture, imagery of a glorious reward. And who are the friends of God? Well, Jesus tells us who they are. They are those for whom Christ died. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, you are my friends. The gospel is of first importance. Jesus died for his friends on the cross to pay for their sins. And when Deborah is extolling the, the, the virtues of Zebulon, we have a beautiful picture of the gospel. I want you to look at it in your Bible. Judges chapter 5, verse 18, what she says about Zebulon is such a beautiful gospel picture. Zebulon is a people who risked their lives to the death, Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. It is wonderful that they risked their lives, and they are to be commended, and they will be rewarded. However, with Jesus Christ, there was no risk involved. It was a sure thing. He laid down his life for us. Romans 5, 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's not a matter of risk. It's a matter of Jesus willingly taking it. You have this guy, Sisera. He's laying in the tent. He's an evil man. He deserves to be wiped out. The tent peg goes through his head. He did not volunteer for that. He's a guilty man, and he got what he deserved. Jesus Christ goes up to Mount Calvary. He's completely innocent, and he knows that the tent peg or the spike is coming, one through his right hand, one through his left hand, one through his feet, and he is nailed to the cross willingly, having done nothing wrong. Notice also concerning Zebulun, this risk that they and Naphtali take. Uh, Two, they are on the heights of the field. That's a dangerous place to fight. That's a place where risk is involved. That's not a good place for a battle. But blessed be those people because they went there and they risked their lives. You know a really lousy place to fight? It's on a mountain called 
Calvary. There's no chance of winning there. You go there, you go there to die. And that's what Jesus did for his people. We see in this story a beautiful picture of the salvation which is ours in Christ Jesus. So the story of Deborah and Barak is rough and it is true. But I share it with you because I love you. And hopefully from it, you have been refreshed in your understanding of sin and supplication and sovereignty and singing and service and suffering and salvation. Father in heaven, I do pray for these people that they will remember this story, that they will learn it, know it, apply it. Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not saved, I pray that they will, even as Israel called upon you and they got help, Lord, I pray that they would call upon you today and receive help in their time of need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.